Well, thanks for being here this morning. Um, I gotta fill in, fill in the time until they get here. So, um, well, I was thinking back this week about um, I don't know. Maybe it's something we all do in our early twenties. Like we move around a lot because we for, like when we get older, like in our thirties, we realize like how expensive and pain in the butt moving is. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know that, right? Yeah, they know that right now. They've been moving. Um, so when Karina, she's not here today, she's actually in Portland with a friend, but when Karina and I were first married, uh, we moved around a lot, and uh, we actually moved, uh, we, we, we were first married and lived in Springfield, Missouri, and then we moved to Maryland, where I worked for church, and we moved back here to Colorado, and then we moved back to Springfield, uh, a lot of moving, and uh, that's where I had attended, we'd both attended college there, and, and uh, we were good Baptists back in that day, so uh, when you get married and the husband gets a job, the wife just drops out of college because don't judge me, we were Baptists then, so please don't judge me. But that's what you did back in the day. And um, so I, uh, we decided, well, let's get, let's get back to Springfield because I can get back in those job network circles and Karina can finish college. Um, but as the old saying goes, you can't go home again. We found that to be true. And one of the reasons, one of the things that stands out to me about that is... Um, when we went back to Springfield, Missouri, um, we, were, we were attending a, a, a Bible college and a Baptist. Its actually name was still as Baptist Bible College in Springfield, Missouri. And uh, they were big on church attendance, which, as you can imagine, why? And they wanted you to attend a, a local church, obviously. The thing is, though, they were very strict on what church you could actually attend. Uh, basically, they had a list of approved churches, which basically came down to any church which financially supported them, which I guess makes sense, right? Um, now, I found this, though, unsatisfactory for several reasons. Uh, one being is, again, don't judge me. This is just pre-Baptist. This is Baptist me, so please don't judge me here. Um, according to Baptist teaching, I, as the man, uh, was the spiritual leader of the household, and I should have authority about where my family attends church. The thing is, though, um, the school was basically requiring that my wife had to attend one of their approved churches, and I found that to be unsatisfactory, I guess you might say. So we had a meeting with the dean of something or somebody, and I remember I, I told him my, my opinion, and he kind of looked at us and said, well, uh, Karina can attend another college if you feel that strongly about it. Uh, so it was, there was not a whole lot of room for negotiation um, in, that, in that arrangement, and uh, we'll, we'll talk about that other uh, church some other time. But about that same time, I enrolled at the state school, Missouri State University, to do a, a graduate program in religious studies. And despite my, my uh, BS in youth and Bible, that was my undergrad degree, uh, BS in youth and Bible, yep. Despite that rigorous academic training at Baptist Bible College, um, they made me do a couple prerequisites to get into their master's program. So one of them was, I don't remember, but the other one I most remember was called Modern Religious Thought. And it was basically a, a survey of, basically a survey of 20th century Christian theologians. And, uh, you know, I was somewhat obviously kind of going through this disillusionment period with my Baptist world and Baptist circles that I knew it. And at the same time, I'm being, I'm being exposed to all these new ideas and new ways of thinking about God and Christianity. And I was certainly 
coming to a point in my life where I was just, I was confused, I was lost, I had, I really had no idea what I was doing. And I, I was kind of just ready to, to some extent, just leave it all and give it all up entirely. And several weeks into the class, I reached out to the professor and said, hey, is there someone I could talk to about this on a more personal level? And she introduced me, or she referred me to a local pastor named Phil Snyder, who was actually a former Baptist himself. And so I think I called him up or something, and we scheduled a meeting. And a few days later, we met at the, the Barnes & Noble in Springfield, Missouri. It's located on Gladstone and Battlefield. And I, was, I remember driving up, we had a, a red Volkswagen Jetta. Do you remember those boxy Jettas? This was a cool little car. It had a sunroof, tinted. I don't know why why we sold it, but it was a cool little car, and I drove up and parked, and I remember walking in, you know, like, kind of nervous, like, what am I doing here? And I don't remember, like, he spotted me, or I spotted him, but, but we found a table, summer six, you know, they usually have the Starbucks or whatever they're in, and what I remember, I don't know if it actually went this way, but what I remember is, like, as soon as we sat down at the table, like, almost as soon as that happened, like, he got up again, and he went back uh, to the religious section of the bookstore, and he grabbed this book off the shelf. This book is called The Heart of Christianity, uh, Rediscovering a Life of Faith by an author, Marcus Borg. So obviously I went home and read the book. And for me, it was a life-changing experience, uh, both meeting that pastor and, and reading this book. Um, and it's obviously something that stuck with me throughout the years. Um, but I think the more I think about it, the more I again, many years distance from that first meeting, like I think about how much that pastor took away from his time out of his busy schedules to meet with some, some disillusioned 20-something he didn't know from Adam um, to help me out. Now, fortunately, I'm actually uh, fortunately enough to still know that pastor, and I'll hopefully get to see him again in a couple weeks uh, in July at a national conference I'm going to. Um, but uh, as I think about it, you know, I think in many ways, if I hadn't met that pastor, you know, I sometimes wonder if I'd, I'd, I certainly don't think I'd be a pastor. I don't think I'd honestly be a Christian. Um, and I don't think I'd be the person I am today. And I kind of like who I am today, if I can say that. Uh, so I'm thankful for that experience. And I think we can all think back, if we, if we think back long enough and far enough in our life, I think we can all think about people in our lives who had a profound impact upon us. You know, someone who, because of their kindness, their influence, whatever, helped shape us to be the people we are today. You know, maybe, maybe it was like a school teacher who saw, your, uh, saw our academic prowess and kind of guide us into a field of expertise or a field of study. Maybe it was like a mentor or a supervisor at work who was willing to help us advance in our career. Maybe it was just, maybe it was like an author uh, like this, or maybe it was a speaker who just said something that just hit you know, deep within us, and it kind of inspired us to, to go and take a risk, take a step uh, in our personal life. You know, I think about personally, like, I can think about all these different mentors and pastors in my life who have made a difference to get me where I'm at today. I think back, like, that's my goal, is to be that kind of impact on someone else's life, I hope, in the future. But I, I bet whoever they are, whatever they did, we can all think about someone uh, who left an indelible mark upon us and remember what they did for us. And we, can, we know the, the incredible impact that people like these can have on our lives. 
And these are the kind of people I think that we see over and over again in the Bible. So today we're continuing our series on Elijah, one of these characters, I think, who leaves an indelible impact, at least upon me when I read him. And uh, we're thinking about how Elijah many went through many dry and barren times in, in his life and, and how we can relate to that in our life of faith today. Now, for those who weren't here last, last week, I'll give a little backstory. Elijah was a prophet who was sent by God to speak out against the king's false worship of the false god, Baal. And Elijah, Elijah's name actually means, we have it here, his name means, my God is Yahweh. So it's, it's kind of an interesting dynamic of uh, Elijah going in to see this, this king, his, his name is King Ahab, and whenever just he's announced to the king, you can imagine, the king basically hears, oh my God is Yahweh, my God is Yahweh, introduced to the king. So the king, and a, uh, the king Ahab and this Elijah character didn't get along real well, and you can kind of see why, because Elijah is just present, just his name being announced, but just this constant irritant uh, to the king's face. So uh, kind of how the story gets going is there's this, this drought in the land that's announced by Elijah to King Ahab because King Ahab's god Baal was supposedly the god of fertility and the god of rain. So by, by, by Yahweh saying there's going to be a drought in the land, I mean, this is direct smackdown of who's the real deal, right? Uh, so the drought comes, and Elijah's, we talked about this last week, Elijah is sent to go see a widow and her son who were not great shape themselves. Meets her. Oops. Uh, when Elijah meets her, she was gathering kindling to make one last meal to feed her and her son before they starved to death. So, tough situation to be in. Now, fortunately, during Elijah's stay with her, they had enough to eat, miraculously, we might say. And right when things were about looking up, right when the, the, the widow might think, oh, my, my life is finally taking a turn for the better, things all, all of a sudden uh, turn for the worse. So we're going to read here in uh, 1 Kings 17. We'll have it on the screen if you'd like to follow along. I'm kind of old-fashioned. I still like to read it from um, the, the Bible here, from the text itself, just, for, just to interact. So we're going to read from verse... 1 Kings 17, uh, yeah, 1 Kings 17, 17, actually, interesting enough. So after the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, uh, jumps right into it, became ill, the son's illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She then said to Elijah, the, the woman, the widow said, what have you against me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son, but Elijah said to her, Give me your son. And Elijah took him up from her bosom and carried him up into the upper chamber where he was lodging and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried out to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. It's kind of almost like thinking about it. It's kind of like Elijah did what we might call mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation back in the day. So the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child came to him again, and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. So the woman said to Elijah, Now I know, I think this is the 
this is interesting. Now I know that you are Elijah, you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. The word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. Very interesting, I think. Again, what would have been for this woman a slow and steady recovery had suddenly become something terrible and tragic. And she was already, already a widow in this culture where her standing, her social and economic fortunes were based on her ties to a man, her relationship to a man. And as we notice here, she doesn't even get a name. We just, we just have to call her the widow. I thought almost we should, we should all think of a, of a name for this woman in our head just to give her the, her due, right? Um, but she's already a widow, and her economic and social status was tied to her former husband, but she looks at her son as her future hope because if her son can grow up, she can at least, when he's grown up, she can at least have uh, status and security and economic uh, well-being in his household. So when this sudden illness comes upon the son, I mean, she's understandably upset. What's interesting, though, is almost how sudden her, her ferociousness, her maternal instinct kicks in because Again, we talked about this last week. It's not too long ago in this backstory that she was, again, she was prepared to die with her son. Uh, verse 12 in the in first chapter, uh, chapter 17, when Elijah comes to her, she says, I have nothing baked. We're going to home to prepare some food that we may eat it and die. So she's ready to die. And then all of a sudden, jumping ahead to verse 18, she says to Elijah, she says, Why have you done this to me, O man of God? You have come to bring my sin to repentance and cause the death of my son. So it's the sudden, the sudden transfer of being ready to die, being willing to die, and all of a sudden now, after spending some time with Elijah, after experiencing the possibility of life with Elijah, all of a sudden this woman is ready to live and wants life for her son. So I wonder what's behind that impassioned plea in verse 18 where she says to Elijah, no, what is happening right now, Elijah, is not cool. This is not okay. You need to do something about it. What's behind that impassioned plea? Somehow, after she was preparing herself for death, she was now fighting for her and her son's life. Now on the surface, we could just say, oh, Elijah was a good guy. He was a good prophet and she gave, he gave uh, this widow strength and hope to live, I guess. But really, when I think about it, I think there's more to it than that. It's not that just that Elijah was a swell guy. Rather, I think it's through Elijah she encountered God. Let's look at verse 24. Chapter 17, verse 24. So the woman said to Elijah... Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. Those words in your mouth are truth. The more I think about this story, though, the more I think about, uh, you know, last night when I was trying to sleep and I'm re rehearsing this message in my mind, thinking about, thinking about how I share the, this widow's story uh, honorably. Like, the more I think about the story, the more I think, like, this widow... She's the hero of the story. Like, it's not Elijah. I think on the surface we look and say, well, look what Elijah did. Look how much grace and truth he brought to this household. The more I think about it, like, this widow, like, she is the hero of this story. 
So I think about why does she say, why does she say to Elijah, now I know that you are a man of God. It's almost like she has, she, it's almost like she had for herself experienced God, a God of life and of love and of passion, and she knew that she encountered God. She knew this to be true about God. She said, Elijah, if your God is a God of love and truth and a passion of life, then you need to take care of my son because this is who God is. And this God of life and of love and of passion made known to her through Elijah gave her the strength to take care of her son and to fight for her son. You know, I think back about... um, Phil Snyder, that pastor's influence in my life. As we think back about all the people who have influenced in our lives, I bet we can all agree that it wasn't really just them. Rather, it was God acting through them. Like we encountered God through those people. And I think when we encounter God unexpectedly, especially, it changes us in ways unimaginably. Tom, uh, Tom mentioned this is the last week of Pride, the month of Pride. As I think about that, I, think, I can't think about all the ways that time and time again, LGBTQ plus youth have encountered God or sought to encounter God through others and instead experienced shame, judgment, and rejection. I think in many ways their experiences echo the cry of the widow and saying, What have you against me, man of God? Something else I was thinking about last night as I was trying to sleep. I think it's a question many, if I can say this, many young immigrant children are asking as they come to our country and are not treated very well. I think they can ask I think they can ask and wonder about us as Americans, as people who are espoused to be a Christian nation, what have you against me, people of God? I was reading this past week in the Huffington Post that religious LGBT youth were thirty eight percent more likely to have recent suicidal thoughts with an astounding 52% of lesbian youth having suicidal thoughts themselves. To me, those numbers are astounding and disheartening. Perhaps we shouldn't be so surprised, given what we know about uh, people's experiences, perhaps your own experiences in church. LGBTQ plus youth like these need an encounter with a woman or man of God like the widow experienced with Elijah. Through Elijah, she experienced a gracious, loving, and healing God, the same God these LGBTQ youth are seeking and needing, but let's be honest, not often finding. But the good news is, this is where you come in. Just like Elijah, you can be an avenue of God for people to encounter God through you. Whether it be an LGBTQ, I can't say it, too many words, LGBT youth trying to reconcile who they are with who they know about God. Whether it be a friend or a family member going through a challenging time in their life. 
or whether it just be a stranger you encounter at the store, you have the power, if I could say, you have the power to change someone's perspective, to change someone's understanding, to change someone's relationship with God. And if, you're, if you yourself are in that dry and barren time in your life, find someone. Find someone through whom you encounter God. So I think that's where we're changed. And it's not that uh, you and yourself, we and ourselves are such awesome people. And you might say, speak for yourself, Lauren, right? But rather, it's because of God's spirit within us that empowers us to do good. That's the story. That's the big story of Pentecost. The season of Pentecost we celebrate in the church world. We celebrate it because it's a daily, it's a, a yearly reminder of God's presence in the spirit within us, with us, empowering us. And just like on that day of Pentecost, when 3,000 people joined the church after experiencing God through the disciples, when people encountered God through us, they'll want to encounter God with us. It's kind of like we might say, word of the mouth advertising. So uh, the other day I was having coffee with a pastor, and he's like, oh, Lauren, it looks like you've been working out. So then we started talking about, like, our gym we go to. Uh, maybe for some of you, I don't have this luxury. Maybe for some of you, someone checks out your hair. It's like, man, I love your haircut. I don't have that working for me. Um, so I have to, you know, I have to help out in other ways. You know, that's why I spend so much time at the gym. But some of you, you know, you're walking around and someone's like, man, I love your haircut. And you get talking about, like, who your stylist is. Maybe uh, for some of you, it's like, uh, it's a great recipe, and you, you share your recipe, where you got that recipe from. So in that same way, doesn't it make sense that when people encounter God through us, they'll want to know where we ourselves encounter God? Now, sure, this isn't to say that our church has all the answers, or that this is the only place to experience God. But we want people to know that this is a place where they can encounter God, perhaps in ways unexpected. So back in November, when we were just getting started, uh, our second Sunday, in fact, I think it was, this family came, and uh, they came, and, the, and I talked to the, the wife after, and she said they really enjoyed their time there, uh, but her, her husband wasn't sure, I guess he wasn't cool with the the affirming stance of us, of our church, um, and we're unlikely to return. But she told me something that has stuck with me and I think has, is the best compliment I think we can get and speaks to the truth about who we are and what we're trying to do here. She said, um, when she attended, she said, she said I, I, was, I could tell that God was with you. God was present. God's spirit was with you, among you. And I think that is a powerful testimony. Because that's who we are and what we're trying to be. We want to be a place that no matter who you are, where you come from, or, or what you're about, we want this to be a place where people can experience God's grace, God's love, and God's welcome. So let's be a place. Let's be people through whom we others can experience God. And by being so, we will come, we will be a place 
where everyone encounters God together. Let's pray.